A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Two young fathers are shot to death outside an iconic Utah restaurant. I said, your dad has been hurt really bad. The grief was disorienting for those left behind until one choice changed everything. I just remember writing this letter and it wasn't me writing it. Can a personal decision shape generations? We're all falling for this guy's trick. I'm Amy Donaldson. Season two of The Letter, Ripple Effect, is available now. Follow us at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Someone fatally stabbed Stacey Stanton inside her apartment on February 3rd. This was violent. It was brutal. On February 3rd, 1990, someone brutally murdered 28-year-old Stacey Stanton inside of her second-story apartment in North Carolina, then cleaned up and disappeared. Residents of Maniel have lived in fear. For 30 years, Stanton's killer has had one face and one name. North Carolina investigators and Manio police believe that someone is Clifton Spencer. But his prejudice. They absolutely had tunnel vision that it was the black man who killed the white woman. Keeping an innocent man convicted. They even know now some of them old skogies or them old good old boys. They know this man didn't do that. And covering up more than one crime. I feel bad for that guy. I just really seriously don't think he did that. This is Counterclock, the investigation into the murder of Stacey Stanton. I'm your host, Delia D'Ambra. Within hours of processing Stacy's apartment, the SBI forensic team, led by Dennis Honeycutt, bagged and tagged a lot of evidence. He dusted nearly every surface, lifting 81 fingerprints in total. Whether these prints belonged to just one person, a couple of people, or even 81 people, they didn't know that, but they knew there was potential that a lot of people had been in Stacy's small rental unit. But this didn't really surprise police because as the SBI agents got to the scene and began talking with people, they realized pretty quickly that Stacy was a very social person. She had a lot of people in and out of her place on a regular basis. In addition to her job as a waitress, she cut hair in her apartment to make extra money on the side. So there were people coming and going from the unit all of the time. According to the SBI's report, all of the fingerprints were retrieved from surfaces like door frames, tables, cups, stuff you would expect. And none of the prints were impressions made in blood. So with so many fingerprints to work with, they needed to figure out who each one belonged to. But it was complicated because some of the prints were only partials. 
To start, they at least wanted to talk with people who would have had a reason to be at Stacy's, people that were close to her and were around the apartment on a regular basis, people who probably had touched a lot of surfaces in her house. They figured several prints were going to come back as being Stacy's, but they also had strong suspicions that some were going to belong to a man named Norman Brandon, Stacy's recent ex-boyfriend. Now, everyone knew Norman as Mike, so from here on out, we're going to call Norman Mike Brandon. Investigators were really interested in Mike because they'd found mail addressed to him inside of Stacy's apartment. That mail was a clear sign that he'd lived temporarily with her at some point. Conveniently for the SBI, Mike had an extensive criminal history in North Carolina, and the State Department of Corrections already had his fingerprints on file. The SBI planned to compare his prints to some of the 81 prints found at the scene. What's interesting, though, is that Mike actually beat them to the punch. At 3.30 in the afternoon on February 3rd, just an hour or so after Stacy was found dead, Mike came to the police. He said he wanted to help because he thought he might have information on who Stacy was with the night before. He'd shown up at the crime scene and given a handwritten statement to Dare County Sheriff's Colonel Jasper Williams. Mike wrote that the night before, Friday, February 2nd, he was at a downtown bar called the Green Dolphin Pub. He said he saw Stacy there, but he wasn't with her. He was with his new girlfriend, Patty, who worked at the bar. Mike said everyone was drinking and Stacy became upset that he was with a new girl. Then she stormed off and left. Right around that time she left, Mike says a friend of his named Clifton Spencer walked into the bar. Shortly after Clifton came inside, he began talking with Mike. Mike said Clifton was causing problems in the pub with some guys over money at the pool table going missing. And this interaction made Clifton eventually leave. But he returned a little while later to tell Mike that he'd been at Stacy's. Clifton said that while he was there, Stacy asked him to go back to the bar and tell Mike to come see her. When Mike said he wasn't going to go see Stacy because he didn't care to, Clifton mentioned he was going back over to Stacy's to see if she was all right, because when he was there before, she'd been crying. After getting this statement from Mike, Jasper Williams began looking into it. He wasn't exactly clearing Mike of any connection to the crime just yet. But because Mike had been so forthcoming right away, Jasper believed that what he'd said was relevant. Not long after getting Mike's statement, the sheriff's office decided to run a records check on Clifton Spencer. Deputy Terry Williams is the one asked to do that. Now, if you remember, Terry is the same woman who found Stacy's body earlier in the afternoon with Tina. When she's asked to run a check on Clifton, she switched gears from being a part-time diner hostess and is back in law enforcement mode. Terry told me that in between the time Jasper took Mike's statement at 3.30 in the afternoon and before the SBI even began processing Stacy's apartment, she was asked to look into Clifton Spencer. She says she sat in on a conversation in Jasper Williams' office with an SBI agent joining them, and those men agreed that Clifton was already a suspect. It's at that point Jasper tells her to run an open warrant check on Clifton. Terry says she did, and after punching some parameters into a criminal records database, a result came back. Clifton Spencer, a black male from Columbia, North Carolina, a town 30 minutes away from Manio, 
had an outstanding warrant for drug charges. The state of New Jersey had put the warrant out on him, and technically, this meant he was a wanted man. I dug through a pile of old documents and was actually able to find that exact warrant printout from February 3rd, 1990. The paper shows that at 6.04 p.m. on February 3rd, the printout landed on Jasper Williams' desk. Now, this means that just a few hours into their investigation, before any physical proof was obtained showing Clifton even knew Stacy, investigators had him on their radar as someone of interest, but not because of any physical evidence that placed him at the scene, but because Mike Brandon had brought his name up. SBI agents and the Manio police chief decided to re-interview Mike again because so far he's the only one who brought up Clifton's name and it was possible he might have known more about him. At 9.40 at night on February 3rd, the police and Mike meet at the Dare County Courthouse in downtown. Mike again recapped his story of being at the Green Dolphin Pub the previous night and he mentioned that he saw Stacy and Clifton. But this time, Mike went into more detail. He addressed right off the bat that he used to live with Stacy in her apartment, but said that he moved out just two months earlier, in December of 1989. To me, that's a good way to explain why his fingerprints might be inside, if investigators found any. Mike said after he and Stacy had broken up, he started seeing his new girlfriend, a woman named Patty Rowe. Mike tells the agents that Patty found out she was pregnant with his child at the beginning of February, but he wasn't sure if Stacy knew that or not. He said when he got to the bar at 6 o'clock, he cashed his paycheck with the bartender and then met up with Patty. Stacy was inside near the jukebox drinking wine coolers, and to avoid direct contact with his ex, he started playing pool in another room. But Stacy kept making eye contact with him and eventually made her way over to him. He said that she asked him how he was doing and if he was ready to come home. That comment upset Patty, and the closer Stacy got to Mike, the worse the situation became. Mike says at one point Stacy was rubbing on his arms and told him that she still loved him, and he said that he said the same thing back to her. Patty, his pregnant girlfriend, who is right there, grew angrier and angrier with this drama, and finally Mike just told Stacy she should leave. So she did, upset and crying. After that, Mike says that Clifton walked into the bar and asked Mike if he wanted to smoke crack together, and Mike tells Clifton no. Then, just like Mike had said in his original written statement, he says Clifton got into a verbal spat with some guys at the pool table over money going missing, and then Clifton left. He says Clifton returned about a half hour later and told Mike he'd gone walking and ran into Stacy in her driveway. Clifton tells Mike that Stacy was still crying and had asked Clifton to go back to the bar and tell Mike to come over to her apartment. Mike told Clifton that he wasn't going to leave the bar and said he would catch up with Stacy later. Mike says Clifton then asked him for money to go buy cocaine, but Mike refused. Mike said that that night Clifton was broke and wanted drugs badly. He'd gone around to a lot of people asking to bum off money. Mike said he and Clifton weren't exactly friends and that they just knew each other from work. At the time, Mike worked in construction and Clifton had once been a delivery driver for a building supply company in Manio. They'd become friends and had a history of doing drugs together. Mike says that Clifton knew Stacy because he'd been to her apartment several times to do cocaine. 
Mike says when Clifton left the bar for the second time, it was around 11 o'clock at night, and that was the last time he saw him. In his interview, Mike was very clear to establish his own alibi. He said that after a few hours of drinking, he and Patty left the bar with some friends and everyone went to that friend's home in Manio to stay the night. He says he was there the entire night and those people could vouch for him. But before questioning Mike any further or confirming his alibi, the SBI immediately ran with what Mike had told them about Clifton. Their top priority from that point forward was finding and questioning Clifton because they believed he was the last person to see Stacy alive. As a journalist, I've always been fairly organized with where to find things when I put them away or leave them. But becoming a mom, that was a whole other ballgame. I feel like I've accumulated way more stuff, and for a long time, I just didn't know how to store it all. But then I found organizing magic with Smart Labels. Smart Labels are the QR code stickers that have changed my life and are likely going to change yours. They help you organize your stuff in storage around the house or in your storage unit. And all you have to do is put one of the QR code stickers on a box or tote, scan the sticker with the Smart Labels app, and enter what's going in the tote. You can add pictures of your stuff and everything. So when you're looking for that one specific thing you can't find, all you have to do is search in the app and it will tell you where you put the tote, what color the QR code sticker is, and what the four character code on the sticker is, so you know exactly where to find your stuff. Get your labels today by searching for Smart Labels, one word, on Amazon. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? then Philo may be your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles. Just a better way to watch TV. Philo has an unlimited DVR for one year. Save all your favorite shows so you can watch on your own schedule. Philo allows for multiple profiles and multiple streams, meaning everyone in the house can have their own saved shows and up to three simultaneous streams. Never fight over who gets to pick what to watch. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like ID, Lifetime, and MTV. With Philo, you can start watching in seconds for less money and less hassle. Try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash counterclock. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash counterclock to binge all your favorite murder mysteries now. SBI agents working Stacy's case were able to track down Clifton in the small town of Columbia, North Carolina. Columbia is a 30-minute drive inland from Manio. You have to pass through it if you're going to the Outer Banks from cities like Raleigh or Charlotte. It's just over the Dare County line in Terrell County. Less than a 1,000 people live there, and in a stark contrast to Manio, most of the residents in Terrell County are African-American. Clifton has called Columbia home since he was born. I was just like any young man that grew up in the 60s. You know, we, my friends, we all played a lot of sports, you know. Every day we'll play basketball or something, and the summers we played a lot of sports. He graduated from Columbia High School and was well-known in the small community by the time he turned 18. His family, like everyone else there, was poor and Black, but that didn't bother him. 
my dad worked very hard to provide for the family. My mother was a, was a homemaker. And I think that, uh, you know, I just had, a, <laughs> to me, a normal small town upbringing. What did wear on him and other Black families in Columbia was the town's claim to fame, the historic Somerset Plantation a.k.a. an old, rich, white family's home where 300 black slaves lived and worked before the American Civil War. The biggest thing down there in that area is that plantation that everybody wanted to go and see. It's a historic marker, but the history is not a good history for anyone. This site is a nationally recognized tourist attraction, and its roots of racism run deep in the small town. There was lynchings all over the place. In Terrell County in the 20s and 30s, Washington County, I'm sure Dare County had theirs as well. And it was almost like, it's like a, a town hall meeting or something like that when they, when they lynched somebody. The railroad tracks that Clifton grew up playing around aren't far from Somerset. The railway was essential back in the day for transporting goods from the plantation. And it's along those same tracks on Sunday, February 4th, 1990, that the Terrell County Sheriff pulls over his cruiser. He sees 31-year-old Clifton Spencer walking alone. Here's Clifton's memory of that moment. He came up there and he said that uh, he needed to talk to me. I came over there and he asked me, I need for you to go. Come with me down to... uh, the uh, sheriff's office, I need to tell to you about something. I said, okay. So I rode down there with him. When I got there, I think I spoke with, it was an SBI agent, I think the sheriff or deputy sheriff from, from Dare County. Clifton spent the next two hours willingly talking with Manio's police chief, Steve Day, and an SBI agent named Kent Insko. They asked me questions about Stacy. What was the last time I saw her? And I said, I saw her last night. Clifton explained to the men that he'd been in Manio at the Green Dolphin Pub on Friday, February 2nd. He had no idea Stacy had been murdered until they broke the news to him in a very bizarre way. I was in the office down there in the jail, you know, and they walked out and they left. They had me sitting at a, at a desk, I think it was the sheriff's desk. It was... Two big pictures laying face down on the desk before I got there. And I didn't really uh, notice that they were there when they told me this. They direct me to sit right here. And so what those pictures were was the pictures of Stacy. And that really, it, it made me mad and it hurt me that they did that like that. Pictures so of a crime scene? Right. Mm. Pictures of her. Despite this cruel way of telling him Stacy was dead, Clifton still cooperated with investigators. He told them everything he remembered about that night. He said he started hitchhiking around 6.30 at night, and two white guys he knew had given him a ride from Columbia to Manio, and then those men dropped him off at the Green Dolphin Pub around 7 o'clock. When I first entered that bar, when I got there, I just walked up there, and at that particular time, people of color really didn't go and spend a lot of time at that pub at night, but uh, from time to time I had been in there during the day. I did see Stacy when I came in, and uh, apparently 
once I came in, she was pretty much having some kind of disagreement with her boyfriend. So she took off and ran out. Clifton got some bad vibes from two white guys at the bar who worked for the Coast Guard. He says he got the impression that he wasn't welcome there because he was black. He says those guys accused him of stealing coins off of the pool table, which he denied. At that point, Clifton says he's over all of the tension and decided to just leave. He had plans to go to his friend Wayne Morris's house anyway, and it was only about a 15-minute walk from the bar. And I was headed to my friend's house, and I uh, actually was walking past the apartment that Stacy was living in in that particular time. And she uh, she had been drinking, but uh, she saw me, she hollered at me, and I, and I went to see what she wanted. And so from there, you know, she pretty much asked me if I didn't mind to go back and ask her boyfriend to uh, come by the house. I went by to ask, and pretty much that's when all he decided to decline to go. After Mike said he didn't care to catch up with Stacy, Clifton went back to Stacy's to tell her Mike wasn't coming by. This was around 11 o'clock at night, according to Clifton. He said after that second trip to Stacy's apartment, he and Stacy shared a few drinks of vodka together inside of her kitchen and living room, and she continued to lament over Mike. After a while, Stacy decided she wanted to smoke crack. Now, Clifton was down for this because at the time, he admits he was a full-blown drug addict who didn't have a steady job and nowhere to be since at the moment he was technically homeless. I think about a lot that had transpired up to that point before that, that particular date. I was in a point in my life where I wasn't in a good space at all. I had started using drugs and I think that, you know, from that point on, I just, I become a drug addict. You know, I was just out there running around. I, I was a functioning drug addict, of course. I was working every day, but yet I would go out and use drugs. And um, I uh, say up to that day, I used to just chase, go and find people that wanted to go get high, and I just hang with them. A lot of the people that I come in contact with, that was from manual was people that use drugs. At this point, it's important to note that along with Stacy and Clifton at her apartment, there was another man who came by briefly. His name is Richard Fugate, and he's a guy who'd been at the Green Dolphin Pub. On both trips Clifton made to Stacy's apartment to and from the bar, he tells investigators that he, Richard, and Stacy were inside the apartment together, but then eventually Richard left. We'll get more into Richard's story in a future episode, but for now, just keep that in the back of your mind. Clifton says after Richard leaves, it's just him and Stacy, and it's at that point that they decide they're going to smoke crack. Stacy has a little bit inside of a pipe in her bedroom, but by the time Clifton goes to get it and comes back to see Stacy, she's changed her mind and didn't want any. So Clifton takes a hit by himself and uses it all up. A few minutes later, Stacy walks into the room and asks for some. Apparently, she changed her mind again, but after Clifton took the hit, there wasn't any left for her. Clifton says Stacy hands him $35 to $40 in cash and asks him to go out and buy some more, which he does. And this is the point where Clifton says his memory gets really, really fuzzy, both during his interrogation with investigators in 1990 and still to this day. 
He says he knows he left Stacy's apartment and went to some areas around town where he thought he could score, but he never got any drugs. The details of how long that took him or any specific people he came across, he can't remember. He says his memory is so bad because his brain was in a fog from drinking most of the night and being high. According to the SBI agent's paperwork on this case, they wrote down that Clifton said that at one point before he left to get drugs, he and Stacy had laid down in her living room together on her mattress. The agent's paperwork says that Clifton said he remembered at one point Stacy changed out of the miniskirt that she'd been wearing at the pub and put on gray sweatpants. The SBI agents also wrote that Clifton said that he thought he may have tried to be intimate with Stacy laying down together, but he knew nothing had really happened because he had not been able to become aroused. But that's according to the SBI agents' reports. Clifton says he doesn't remember saying any of this. One thing he does know for sure is that after wandering in search of drugs for a bit, he returned to Stacy's apartment to give her her money back. But by the time he returned, her door was locked. He told investigators he believed this was around 1.30 or 2 in the morning. He couldn't be sure. And he thought it was weird that the apartment's inside door was locked because Stacy was expecting him to come back with drugs. When he couldn't get in and no one answered the door, he just decided to keep the money and then he headed to his friend Wayne's house. Clifton made the short walk to Wayne's, but he says when he got there, Wayne wasn't home. After making a few laps around his neighborhood and stumbling through a nearby convenience store parking lot, he returned to Wayne's between 4 and 5 in the morning, knocked again, and this time Wayne answered. Clifton says Wayne let him inside and within a few minutes he fell asleep on a recliner in his living room. The next morning he said he hitchhiked on US 64 in Manio and a white male pulled over and offered him a ride back to Columbia. As Chief Day and the SBI agent are listening to Clifton's version of events, they realize he's just given them a ton of information. There were several people they needed to verify his story with. But first they asked him if he'd agree to take a polygraph the next day, and Clifton said yes. Just to make sure that Clifton couldn't go anywhere, the police acted on that outstanding warrant from New Jersey and arrested him. Clifton was locked down, for the time being in Terrell County. The next morning, a few more SBI agents, their supervisor, Chief Day, and Jasper Williams from the sheriff's office in Dare County arrived to the sheriff's office in Terrell County. They prepare Clifton for his polygraph and ask him to sign a release form. But at that point, he's not really feeling it anymore. Clifton had sobered up after spending the night in jail, and he's thinking clearer now. He tells the investigators he doesn't want to take the test without speaking to an attorney or to his father first. By one o'clock that afternoon, both of Clifton's parents had come to the jail and spoken with them. And after that, Clifton decided he would take the test. He said speaking with his parents convinced him that because he had nothing to hide, he should use this as a chance to prove he wasn't involved. They had me sitting there and the machine was making a whole lot of noise. Anytime I see something, it just make a lot of noise. So every time it makes noise, I look at it, you know, something like that. So it was get a, a not an accurate reading or give a reading that maybe, maybe I'm not actually being truthful or whatever. 
For three and a half hours, an SBI agent grilled Clifton about his version of events and everything he said happened between him and Stacy. I got a hold of some public documents that detail this interrogation by the SBI. And when you look at them, you can see that really a lot of the agent's questions weren't really questions at all. They were more suggestive statements to Clifton to see if he would agree. They're putting these things together and they're making a story out of nothing. The uh, SBI, they didn't completely lie. What they did was they made a scenario with some things that I did say to make it seem like this is possible, this is what happened. At the very end of the polygraph, they finally ask Clifton three direct questions. Did you cut Stacy? Did you cut Stacy in the apartment? And were you there when Stacy was cut? Two of the SBI agents doing the interrogation grade the results, and they gave Clifton a score of negative 12, which according to them meant he'd failed. Now at this point, Clifton is starting to figure out what's really going on. He is a murder suspect, and there was no way he's going to continue to talk with them. But they keep after him, and that night, the pressure only got worse. By 10 o'clock, the SBI had gotten a judge to sign off on a search warrant, which allowed the SBI to seize blood, hair, and clothing from Clifton. He told them that the shirt he was wearing when they arrested him was the same one he'd worn on Friday night at the bar, so they took that too. The warrant also allowed the SBI to compare Clifton's fingerprints to the ones collected from the crime scene, but Clifton already told them he'd been inside Stacy's apartment, so his prints were probably going to be on a lot of surfaces. I knew that, you know, whatever they took from me, you know, like the fingerprints, I know my fingerprints because I was there. Around midnight, Clifton was taken to Chowan Hospital, just outside of Columbia. A doctor there plucked out his hair and drew his blood, and right away it went to Dennis Honeycutt. February 6th and 7th go by with Clifton still sitting in jail. But on Thursday the 8th, two SBI agents returned and interrogate him once again. This time they confront him head on, and they suggest that he tried to put the moves on Stacy while they were alone in her apartment, and she rejected him. Things got ugly, and she'd come at him with a knife, and that's why he killed her. Clifton denied all of that. He said that he couldn't remember a lot of what had happened that night because he was high and drunk, but he knew he didn't kill anyone. He said he vaguely remembered laying down on the mattress next to Stacy for a bit and maybe engaging in heavy petting, but he's adamant they didn't have sex. After hours of telling the SBI the same story over and over again, Clifton was exhausted and mentally drained. What they were doing was they were actually putting me in a setting and then filling in the blanks. Uh, like one of the agents said, you were drinking while you were in Stacey. Did y'all drink? So I said, yeah, I drank so. He said, well, did you ever use I said, yeah, I used the bathroom. He said, uh, yeah, I had to go to the bathroom before I left. And I said, I used the bathroom. What he did was he put me, he wanted to put me in the bathroom. He did that, and then he wrote a statement and said that I meant to clean and washing up before I left. Clifton never had a lawyer with him during any of these interrogations. On top of that, None of the conversations between him and the SBI were ever recorded. There was no recordings of any of those conversations that I had with them. 
not a single one. If there had been, then people would see that I didn't say any of the things that they said I said. Every conversation he had with police was slowly becoming his word against theirs. As they wore him down, Clifton said he felt like he had no choice but to cooperate. The more he resisted, the more they'd point the finger at him and put words in his mouth. Finally, he felt the only way to clear his name was to do what they asked. At 8 o'clock that night, February 8th, SBI agents asked Clifton to go with them to Manio. They wanted him to show them the exact route he said he took from Stacy's apartment to Wayne's trailer. According to their own reports, the SBI agents transported Clifton from Columbia and drove him to Manio. Now, this is wrong for one huge reason. They didn't have the authority to do that. The sheriff of Terrell County never signed off on a prisoner transport order for Clifton, meaning the SBI couldn't just take a Terrell County prisoner and move him into another jurisdiction for an investigation that had nothing to do with the drug charges Clifton was facing. Technically, Clifton was a prisoner of Terrell County, waiting to be extradited back to New Jersey. So by removing him from Columbia and taking him to Dare County for the murder investigation, that violated protocol and it violated the law. But these SBI agents aren't following what you'd call standard procedure at this point. I mean, they've already interrogated the man multiple times without letting him contact an attorney. And they're not recording any of the interviews they've had with him. Now they're taking him on a ride 30 minutes away to isolate him. Clifton says that car ride made him nervous because he didn't know these SBI agents or what they were going to do. Even though he had a criminal history in Terrell County, he at least knew the sheriff there and there was familiarity. Up until this point, he said the sheriff in Columbia had been really cool with him at the jail and made sure that he was comfortable and treated him like a normal person, not a murder suspect. As the car pulls out of Columbia, Clifton is headed away from any law enforcement he knows, and he's going to Dare County to try and convince the SBI agents that he's innocent. Once they arrive in Manio, he rides along with the SBI and shows them the path that he took on foot from the pub to Stacy's apartment and then to his friend Wayne's. I wanted to see this path for myself, so I took a trip up to Manio. Turn left onto Queen Elizabeth Avenue, then turn left onto Ananias Dare Street. In a quarter mile, your destination will be on the left. It was important I retrace Clifton's steps so I could understand exactly what he told investigators. What I found was that the walk from the Green Dolphin Pub to Stacy's would have taken him only a few minutes, seven at most. The walk from Stacy's to Wayne's would have been longer, more like 15 minutes. The locations aren't super far apart, but it was easier for me to just drive there. Let's plug in the address to Wayne Morris's house from here. So Wayne lived exactly 0.7 miles from Stacy's apartment on Ananias Stair Street over down just a little bit, a two-minute drive. It says 13-minute walk. Clifton told the SBI that as he walked to Wayne's, he crossed over US 64. Head west on Ananias Dare Street toward US 64 East, then turn right onto US 64 West. Then he cut behind the Elizabethan Inn Hotel, 
went through some trees, and ended up at the back of Wayne's trailer. The Elizabethan Inn is still operating today, and the property looks almost exactly the same as it did in 1990. So if he cut through the back of the Elizabethan Inn, he could have gotten to Wayne's actually faster than the route we're taking to drive because we're taking the roads. But if you're on foot, you could have cut back behind the inn and then through like a small little stretch of woods and Clifton would have come right up to Wayne's trailer. So Wayne says his trailer was trailer 62 on Jackson Street, which this is all... You've arrived. This is all like a trailer park neighborhood. So trailer 62, trailer 62, there it is. A new family lives in Wayne's old trailer now, but seeing where it was located really was helpful for me. The area was right next to my old high school and a mile from my parents' house, It's somewhere I'd driven probably hundreds of times. So I started to think, what had the SBI agents in Clifton done at this point, 30 years prior to me standing there? What was their next move? If it were me, I'd have taken Clifton back to Columbia and seen what other leads I could follow up on. But that wasn't what happened. Instead, the agents took Clifton to a trailer a little ways up the road It was an old building Dare County used as an off-site drug investigations bureau. Inside the dingy trailer were a few chairs, a table, and more SBI agents. And they took me to, uh, it's an office that I guess the undercover drug enforcement from the sheriff's department used to use out there on the airport road. They took me in that office, and uh, the agents that was there, I didn't know them, never saw them before. And they just sent me in there and just kept talking about this and going to say this and say, I said that or, you know, whatever I was saying, they would actually kind of add something to it. And then the agents left me in the room. You know, I didn't have the handcuffs on. And there was a rifle sitting right beside me. I don't know if it had bullets in it or what. I just felt that those people were trying, you know, trying to set me up with something here. And I told them I wanted to go back to Columbia. But Clifton didn't go back to Columbia. He sat in that office and endured another interrogation that lasted four hours. The SBI pushed him hard, even bringing up his criminal history from when he served in the Army. You see, Clifton had been charged and convicted of assaulting one of his former girlfriends while stationed in Germany many years earlier. In that attack, he admitted to using a pair of scissors. The SBI hammered him about this detail, and they suggested that he had attacked Stacy in a similar way, except this time he used a knife. Again, Clifton denied that, but the pressure was becoming overwhelming, and he had nothing left. The agent kept asking me uh, the same question over and over again. I said, man, I don't tell you. Did I kill her? I said, I kept telling him. I kept telling him. He had asked me that same question. Probably about the 10th or 11th time, I just, I didn't say anything. I just took a deep breath and just held my head down. The agent said I shook my head, yes. The other agent said that he saw me <laughs> through, I, apparently he must have seen through the wall, saying that I, I shook my head, yes, and I didn't do that. And when he said, thank you, you know, like I said, for what? And then he said, you know, like, I'm, I know you feel bad for what? You know, that's when he come up with that, that nonsense. 
The SBI agents wrote in their report that Clifton slumping his head in exhaustion was confirmation to them that he had nodded yes to what they were accusing him of, and that was as good as a confession. That's when they wrap up the interrogation and transport him back to Columbia around midnight. Finally, on February 9th, Clifton's father shows up to the jail with a local attorney from Columbia. This attorney, a man by the name of Charles Ogletree, talks with Clifton for a while and shuts down any more one-on-one interrogations with the SBI. But at that point, the damage had already been done. The SBI and Manio police had a lot of damning information against Clifton, information that they used to request an arrest warrant for first-degree murder. They went to the district attorney on February 9th and explained their case so far, but the DA said no way. He said there was not enough sufficient evidence to arrest Clifton for the crime. And he pushed back saying that the SBI needed to dig further and do actual detective work to prove their case, not just keep interrogating Clifton. But while they had to wait for forensic evidence to be processed, the pressure to make an arrest was mounting. And this is where the SBI and local investigators really dug their heels in. They wanted to find anything that supported Clifton was their man. Instead of going back and talking with witnesses like Terry Williams and Tina and Mike Brandon, they visit Wayne Morris, the one man who is supposedly Clifton's alibi, or at least someone who would have had direct contact with Clifton shortly after the murder. I found Wayne earlier this year, and he still lives in a trailer in Manio, but just not the same one as he did in 1990. And what he told me as we sat in his living room blew my mind. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. My family and I are ready to eat stress-free this spring with Factors' delicious ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Do you guys understand what this means for me? It means I can eliminate the hassle of having to prep, cook, or even clean up. Now, I have a two-year-old toddler. This is seriously amazing. And the best part is that we can have variety. I can choose from a weekly menu of 35 different options and more than 60 add-ons every week. I'm telling you, say you're not a parent, but you're just a person on the go who wants to save time but eat well. Factor is your solution for fast, premium meals without the need for cooking. Just head to factormeals.com slash counterclock50 and use code counterclock50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code counterclock50 at factormeals.com slash counterclock50. 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Wayne Morris was the first person to see Clifton Spencer after he left Stacy's apartment. 
The SBI visited Wayne when they realized they needed more evidence in order for the DA to give them an arrest warrant for Clifton. This cop come by my house and said he needed to talk to me. I said, talk to me about what? He said, uh, you know Clifton, you know, see Cliff's name? And I said, yes. He said, well, was he by your house such and such a time? And I said, yes. He came by, you know, told him what time. These cops came in the house, two of them, as I recall, and they talked to me for what long. The guy asked me, did I mind him walking around my house? I said, no, he walked around the house and he found this old knife, old rusty knife I had laying out there. I had found, I was gonna clean up. And he showed me, I said, man, that knife has been out there for shit, probably a year maybe, you know. I mean, just been laying up on my trailer. He said, okay, he give it to me. And I put it back where it was at. The agents came inside and asked Wayne if he'd tell them what he remembered when Clifton came by. So he did. Cliff knocked on my back door, and I said, oh, man, who is this? He said, hey, man, it's me, Cliff. I opened the door, I said, oh, man, where you been? You been somewhere all geeked up, you know. He said, man, let me cry. I said, man, yeah, go ahead. He said, all in the trail like you usually do. Because, you know, every now and then Cliff would drop by to see me, and he'd crash. He had been out all night partying, and he wanted to go to Columbia. So he asked me, could he crash out until his ride got ready? I said, yeah, you know, I'm ready to go to work. When Clifton showed up, did he have any blood on him? No, he... he was just high as hell. Excuse me, I mean, he was just, you know, he was gone, man. No, he had no blood on him. <laughs> he was sitting in my recliner, sleep when I left. And you think I want to see some blood? This guy still had his nice little shirt and his jeans on, man. That's what I remember. So clearly, Wayne still feels the same way as he did back then. When I compared what he told me in our interview with transcripts from the conversation he had with the SBI 30 years ago, his story hasn't changed. It's almost word for word the same. He remembers clearly that Clifton got to his house between 4 and 5 in the morning, and he also remembers clearly what the SBI asked him to do after agents came to his trailer. Asked me what I'd be willing to take a lie detector test, and I said, sure. And I took one at the, at the Duke of Darius clothes now, but I took a lie detector test there. And seemed like I can remember, I took a lie detector test twice. That's right. The SBI had Wayne go to a motel in Manio, a place that's a dilapidated rat trap now, and they wanted him to undergo a polygraph. And I just took that test to let them know, man, what I got to life? Well, I don't even know this girl. Didn't know Cliff knew the girl. All I know, Cliff always party down there. I see, I think they just wanted me to take that test because they thought I was going to, I don't know, trying to hide something for Cliff maybe, but I, I just told them like it was, man. They got me taking this, this test because they think I'm going to try to lie for him, but I just told them plain out, hey, man, the guy came by and crashed at my house like he does all the time. Wayne passed his polygraph with flying colors, the SBI found no signs of deception in anything that he'd said. And the fact that he'd been so open to talking with me about the case makes me believe he's telling the truth. I mentioned to him I'd found an SBI agent's report in my research that claimed forensic techs had sprayed luminol in his living room and on his recliner to look for blood. I wanted to know if Wayne remembered that, but his answer wasn't what I expected at all. They looked at the chair... And that was it. And never come I didn't know, you know, forensic, <laughs> nothing, man. 
That was a direct contradiction to what I read with my own eyes in the SBI's documents. So either Wayne isn't remembering it right, or the NCSBI fudged this detail. But why? Why would they lie about that? Something so critical. And why hadn't they looked at anyone else but Clifton? Because there was another person I thought was on the radar that was never really vetted. You know what I mean? The answers are next week on Counterclock. In all the trials I've seen on TV, I've never seen a trial like this one. Be sure to follow Counterclock on social media and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Counterclock is an Audio Chuck original show. Ashley Flowers is the executive producer. And all reporting and hosting is done by me, Delia D'Amba. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Two young fathers are shot to death outside an iconic Utah restaurant. I said, your dad has been hurt really bad. The grief was disorienting for those left behind until one choice changed everything. I just remember writing this letter and it wasn't me writing it. Can a personal decision shape generations? We're all falling for this guy's trick. I'm Amy Donaldson. Season two of The Letter, Ripple Effect, is available now. Follow us at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.